This is the Biz of Wealth. Challenges, rumblings, and evolution of the wealth management industry. Welcome to the Business of Wealth. Today I'm here with Dean Newland. He's the CEO of Mission Facilitators International, and he specializes in leadership development, executive training, strategic planning, and, strat- and specializes is just a nice little word to say he's been doing it for 30 years. So uh, we're going to dive right in with him. Welcome, Dean. Great to be here. Great to have you. So first of all, I know you've been doing a ton of podcasting, right? And um I'd like to ask this question. What is the one question you wish you were asked more often? What What is one question that I wish I was asked more often? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, because I get asked a lot of questions. Nothing comes to mind right away. But I think that the thing that we uh, don't ask enough is questions that help us get to the real question. I mean, we don't, I don't get asked questions that really dive into the real problem. I think we talk about things on the surface and the symptom of things. But when when I'm in conversation with people, I think that the the natural tendency is to stay at that level. But what I think that we all need to get better at is diving deeper into concerns and issues or opportunities and understand what that core nucleus is so that when we understand that we can solve for that. I think we solve problems based on we are a thin understanding of the solution, which is why those solutions don't always work. So if we get to the root cause of something, I think we can do a lot better at creating uh, the right solution. So it's like Einstein was asked once, if you have one hour to create a solution, how would you spend it? And he said, well, I'd spend 55 minutes defining the problem. I don't think we do that enough. So do you see that in leadership mostly? You work with leaders on their, you know, on their planning and on their strategies and on their culture, I heard too. So what do you do with leaders to get to that? Well, one, I think leaders are incentivized and companies are structured for execution. They're not structured for learning. It We are rewarded to do things that are around moving forward and getting results and um, getting things done. That's what our careers are based on. That's what Wall Street likes to reward. It's about that final product. And so we're socialized. We're, we, are, uh, we have paradigms around getting that done. The way I think you can get an executive team to start to think more deeply is by saying, let's bifurcate this conversation and say, The first part is we're just going to identify what the problem is. The second part is going to be later, and that's going to be about solutions to the problem. So then if you help them see that there's a difference between the two, then they don't jump too quickly into the solution side. And so one of the exercises we do with companies is called um, question storming. It's not something that we came up with. I think probably Stanford had this particular process or others who are deep into the innovative process. Uh, methodologies, but it's really about, you know, and, and I think Honeywell did this too. They made famous for this is that you ask questions of a question, you know, like Honeywell used to call it, or G used to call it the five whys, you know, why is that? And then you'd answer that. And well, why is that? You'd answer that. And why is that? Like children do this naturally, little kids do this naturally with their parents, dad, mom, why is it that, you know, 
the sun comes up and then comes down, you know, and they ask these questions. And then the more they ask it, you have to get better at your answer and you get more and more deep into your answer. And I think you can train executives to slow down, not talk about solution, but let's dive into the problem by asking why is more and more often. And that once you get the understanding, we all understand what the problem is, then we're coming from the same point. And so that as we start talking about solutions, they relate to something we all agree on. But when we create solutions based on an assumption, which is often wrong, of what we agree on, then of course the solutions don't always mesh and we disagree on those solutions because we don't come from the same place. So long story, I would say cutting the solution conversation from the problem identification problem, problem identification part of the conversation and then keep asking a lot of whys. Makes sense. I, that goes in line with what I, what the work that we do with the famous Simon, uh, Simon Sinek's uh, Golden Circle. And yes. some leaders really get frustrated at the process, right? And sometimes they, they, it's like, why are you asking me why again? Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's um, hard work. It's not it easy is. to do. It's introspective. It's, it, it's, it's hard emotional work. Oh. I just saw a recommendation for this book about, you know, how, you know, what should you read as a leader? And for me, I've been reading a lot of emotional intelligence books, actually, mm -hmm. you know, because that's the best way, I think, to really get to be the best person you can be for the people that work with you. Right. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think that that's, you know, if you think about, We've been coaching people for, I guess, 30 years, and that's what the company started off on. And if you were to say, what is the, the single most consistent thing that you coach people on? It's what you just said. It's around emotional intelligence, which includes self-awareness, awareness of others, uh, empathy towards others, and ability to be able to create bridges between your point of view and somebody else's, to be able to work together, even when we may not always agree. That sort of skill set, uh, studies seem to say that those who have that can far exceed their career trajectory than those that don't. And often why we let somebody go is not because they're not good at what they do. It's because their emotional intelligence is getting in the way of what they do and, and their ability to work and collaborate with others. I love that. But, you know, the word emotion even was not even allowed until recently into the offices, right? Into the corporate right. world. Right. And now with the pandemic, that was accelerated like everything else. And now everything is about emotions. I, I feel like we are in the other side of the pandemic, right? I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, uh, we've been sequestered and lonely and disconnected from each other for a long time. Um, I've been on the road probably almost every week or every other week. And uh, it's because everybody's so wanting to get back together. And so great, we'll go and we'll fly around and we'll take care of that. But yeah, there's just this blah, huge pent up uh, desire to reconnect, reconnect in meaningful, emotionally resilient and emotionally meaningful ways. And we just can't do this. I mean, you and I are talking this way and we're having a great chat and, you know, delightful person as you are, but it's not the same if we were sitting down in my office or your office, you know, there's a, just a different type of experience. 
I think you're absolutely right. We're we're sorely in need of that. So now that we're talking about that, I wanted to talk about what they call the great resignation. Uh, yes. I've seen, you know, a hundred million explanations to it. What, <laughs> what do you think is the main source of this phenomenon? I th think that great resignation, while it has many factors that have caused it, the major thing that I think that the that this event is, is indicating is that we had problems with our cultures long before COVID. And that COVID just, revealed what was already there. We could hide it. We could push it under the carpet. We could not look at it because we were successful. We were moving forward. If you remember back in 2018, 19, I don't know what your business was like, but we were like cruising. We were like, wow, we are on fire. And success breeds blindness to issues that sometimes are hidden when you have the COVID situation happen, and now everyone has the experience of working at home, and a lot of us liked it. We didn't have to drive an hour into work. Um, we were um, forced into rethinking our life's purpose and what do I really want to do since I don't have to be at work? Maybe I can be virtual. Maybe I want to move. All of a sudden, all these choices came up, and we started to think about what's really important to me, me as a collective me. And I think that what we have noticed is that if there's one word that employees felt that they weren't getting from their places of employment was they didn't feel like they were cared for, that people didn't really care about them, that they became too transactional. And I saw this, um, this study recently, it was three numbers, 78, 50, and 28. <laughs> and 78% represented the number of people who are now currently somewhere on the continuum of burnout, low or high. So 78% of the people out right now in the workforce is, is in some level in burnout, which is huge. 50% represents that these people are actively or will soon be actively looking for new work. Hence your conversation about the great resignation, which we're already seeing. And then 28% represented the number of people who felt that their biggest stress was their boss which is one reason why they were leaving. That's over a quarter of everybody who's now on the way out or the, the, the people who are currently working or approximately half of those who are looking for something else are saying, why am I leaving? Because I don't have a good relationship with my boss. And you go back to EQ, emotional intelligence, that's where that comes in. I don't feel like we have a partnership. I don't feel like I'm being listened to. And I think that social contract between employee and employer is a two-way street. We both have responsibility for it. But in the end, um, I just think that managers have been um, overworked and haven't had time to create those relationships with their people. And people are noticing it saying, you don't care about me. I'm going somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, you know, the signing bonus and the increase in pay uh, will also provide me a better work environment. But I also have heard that people are now experiencing the great regret which is the next step from the great resignation. Now that I've moved, I've got my signing bonus. I've got this job that pays more, but holy crap, the culture is no better. Maybe it's worse than where I came from. And a lot of people are now saying, I made the mistake of moving. I should have stayed where I was. So this is a fascinating, but I, ultimately I think that we, as companies, we need to slow down, uh, do more to 
create environments for thriving cultures and uh, knowing that that sort of learning rich, high EQ culture will not only retain people, but it will also make us more profitable, that those two things are hand in hand. Okay, so, but if we, no, I, I want to give some actionable items to our listeners here because okay. sometimes it sounds very, um, you know, leaders say, yeah, it's very nice to work on culture, but what about my, you know, my profit? What about my margins? Um, mm -hmm. How much do you expect me to focus on this when I'm, you know, sometimes barely making it? So yep. if you had to, you know, make sure one leader executed, I don't know, three main actions to work on your culture. What would you do? You know, what, what would you tell them right now? Okay, these are the three um, to-do items on your desk right now to work on, um, to make sure that your team is productive, engaged, and retained. Great question. I love the way you think. <laughs> It's what I do in my call, in my podcast. It's like, okay, enough theory. What are we going to do about it? <laughs> uh, makes perfect sense. So I would say three things. And thank you for breaking into something simple. Managers and leaders need to spend more time connecting with their employees and simply asking them open-ended questions. How are you doing? Where do you want to go in your career? What's going on with your family? Just listen. Just more of that, that relaxed person-to-person -person conversation that is just checking in. How are you doing? What's going on in your family? What's, how does your career feel to you? What can I do to support you with your goals? You know, those sort of simple things that, that take not much time but that we actually have to schedule into our calendars to make work because if we don't schedule that, I don't think it's a commitment. So I think that leaders need to just be doing that and not providing any answers right yet, but just simply listening and asking these questions, which then connotes or conveys, I care about you. And so, and if I can help you get to where you want to go in your career, great. Or if I can give you a resource for a nanny, great. Anything that's more consultative for your employee, that shows that you care and hopefully you do care, um, <laughs> then that would be number one. Number two, when it comes to the team, I would do what we would call more post-mortems. Post-mortems is a term that comes from healthcare. When you take a look at why did this patient die? Let's learn from this particular experience. But in project management, we also call this after action reviews, is you schedule time for the team to reflect back on a project that they've been working on and saying, hey, where did we fail in this? Where did we succeed in this? And make, make that okay. Celebrate the fact that we had some failures, but more importantly, what did we learn from it? And by giving people a chance to communicate and share what they learned makes it feel like they're being cared for, that they're part of a group bigger than themselves, and that the that management is interested in being able to repair issues that they are very, very much aware of. So these post-mortems, these occasional meetings where the team comes together and just looks in the rearview mirror and says, what did we learn last month? What did we learn about the pandemic? Could we all just take an hour and talk about what did we learn from the pandemic in our personal lives, at work, in how we communicate and how we engage? I've been talking about this for the last year. If we miss out on what the pandemic has taught us, we will have lost a huge opportunity. 
We could just do that. Yeah, I love it. You know, because right now the window is open. Right now we don't, you know, the, the world, at least in the United States, it's opening up again. They're saying that May 3rd of 2022 is when we're going to be able to get on planes without a mask, which would be so great because yesterday I had one on for about eight hours. It's like, ah, I'm getting tired of this. So we're now, we have a window of opportunity to say, what do we learn from this? The third thing I would say is do something we'd call a pre-mortem. So it's another way of doing a, and a, and a sort of an assessment, but now we're looking in the, into the future. So where are we going to go? Where, what's our vision? And then let's take a look at this project that we might be getting into. And then you give the team an opportunity to not be just yes people, but to say, you have this opportunity and I want you to write on post-it notes as many different concerns that you have for something we're about to do. And it's not even that these concerns are valid or not. We just want volume. And we want you to know it's okay. And if you want to make it anonymous, don't put your name to it. And you collect up all of these post-it notes, get people in groups, and we talk about themes and say, all right, this is where, and now all of a sudden, the things that we are afraid to talk about, we're being given a chance to talk about it. And then the, and then the leader has to say, this is all good. We, we want to hear all of it, you know, because every yes becomes stronger with the ability to say no. We can't just always say yes to everything. So then what's, what are some of our concerns? What are some of our no's about this project? And talk about that. And some of these things might be not really valid. Some of them might be really valid. You know, some of them might save you millions of dollars. Some of them might save you employees from being poached by another company. Our biggest concern right now is retention. Okay, great. Let's yeah. talk about that. How do we retain people? Well, let's talk about culture. How do we develop? So all of a sudden you have all these conversations about things that people normally don't talk about because they don't have the time to, because we don't schedule it, because we're always about doing stuff. Yeah. So those are three things that I would suggest doing. I'm going to close just with this one. How would you okay. identify the perfect leader? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's very cliche, but <laughs> I want you to say, actually, I'm going to rephrase it then. I have a quick answer to that, but it's, it's, it's a huge topic. What can I do tomorrow? You, you gave me three steps, you know, checking in with my employees, doing postmortems, doing pre-mortems, basically giving them the opportunity to review their work and to plan their work and to have an input into the future of the company. You, go, you gave me those three very concrete actions and they're, they're great. Um, and those are actions I can make. But we've yes. been talking about emotional intelligence. If I yes. had to choose, if I had to choose one, um, one capability, well, no, one capacity that I have to build on, how would I choose that single capacity emotionally to work on? What's the most important capacity? I, mean, I know most people would say empathy. Um, I. I dare you to find another one. What's the <laughs> capacity that is not empathy that a leadership a leader should have? There is, uh, you know, if you look in my office, you look in your office, there's probably dozens and dozens of books on leadership. So uh, I'll try to just say that I think where is the single thing that seems to be most important in all of it? And I think it's self-awareness. I think that's where you have to start. You know, if you don't have self-awareness, you're not going to have empathy for other people. 
if you don't have self-awareness, you're not going to be going out and asking your leaders and your peers and, and, you know, and your teammates to give you feedback because you won't be able to hear it. You know, all of us have blind spots. There's a great little model out there, if you guys want to look it up, called the Johari window. And it talks about the different components of, of an awareness. And one of them is that I don't know something about myself that others do. So we're all walking around with, with biases. You know, we as human beings, we have to have a bias. Otherwise, we would always be assessing everything for the first time as if it were new. So we have to say, oh, I know what that is. I know what that is. I know what that is. We have to create biases, what makes us get through the day, even though bias has a negative connotation. It is part of the human being's condition. But so self-awareness is a way for us to be able to take a look at those biases or take a look at where we have blind spots. And so if I would say if there's one thing that any leader who wants to be a leader is one, why? That's one thing. And I know you only asked for one, but I give you two. Like, why do you want to be a leader? Yeah. Why do you? Because I ask people all the time. I say, Dean, I want to get some leadership. Company. And you go, why? What's the big picture? Why do you care? Is it just because you want to get more prestige? You want to get more recognition and approval? You want to get a better paycheck? Uh, you want to create better stability for your family? Those are all valid things. And I don't dispute that. But at least let's, let's articulate it. But once you get those things, once you have the increase in pay and you have the, the recognition, the honeymoon's over. Now we're back into the day-to-day. What are you going to do then? Why do you care? Going back to Simon Sinek, what's your why? Why do you want to be a leader? What, do you, what impact are you going to have? What's your purpose in life? What are you trying to do here? You've got a little fraction of time on this little planet. What do you want to do? What do you want to contribute? What's your legacy? But the other flip side, I would say, is that self-awareness constantly being hungry and curious for learning, learning about yourself, that everything you go through has a lesson. Everything. It's like we all signed up by being human beings to be in school. We don't always like the curriculum, but we (laughs) always have something to learn. That situation with our boss, our family, our wife, a son, uh, husband, the whatever. All of them have lessons for us to learn. If we look at it from that standpoint, what can I learn from that? So if you have that sort of self-awareness, that curiosity, I think that's a foundation that can bring you into all sorts of other competencies. But without that, I think, you know, conflict resolution, visioning, being able to lead a high-performing team, uh, being able to coach other people, all the different layers of leadership that you get into fall apart if you don't have strong self-awareness. Dean, it has been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I love the the discussion and uh, anything I can do to support you in the future, please let me know.